Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. Well, you know, at the end of the day, we're here to generally seek pleasure, enjoyment, contentment, fulfillment, uh, pride, a little bit of hedonism. You know, we're here to seek the real-time moments, like right now, that, that we are able to breathe in and smell and take in and enjoy. And if all we do is, as you say, build up that, that savings account by depositing healthy behaviors and choices and never get a chance to extract the marrow from life, it defeats the purpose. It isn't about being perfect. It's about being better. Hello, my name is Dr. Stephanie Stima, and I host expert discussions with thought leaders in all facets of health, including nutrition, fitness, hormones, stress management, performance, recovery, longevity, health span, and energy production. On this show, we discuss complex science, but then we also alchemize it into actionable everyday living. The ultimate goal with the show is to assist you in making informed decisions about your health, and to catapult you into being the hero in your own life. Hello, my Bettys. Welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today I am bringing you a conversation on longevity, on foods that impact our health span and our lifespan exercises and our biomechanics with the one and only Mark Sisson. If you haven't heard of Mark Sisson, he is the founder of Primal Kitchen. You probably have some condiments in your fridge by, uh, by that company. He's also the founder of the Primal Health Coach Institute. He's a New York Times bestselling author with a keto reset diet. He's a publisher of marksdailyapple.com, which is the number one ranked blog for over a decade in the health and fitness category. Uh, Mark attended the University of Massachusetts, where he earned a degree in physical education. After college, he became a professional triathlete and competed in the Ironman Triathlon World Championships in Hawaii. And just as a little piece of information, he is one of the original health coaches and influencers to talk about metabolic flexibility. So he was, he coined the term and was talking a lot about this idea, along with Rob Wolf, uh, sort of at the same time talking about this idea of being able to switch from being a sugar burner to a fat burner. So in today's episode, we are talking to Mark, who is 70 years old and looks like a million bucks in terms of what are some of the constituents of living a long and healthy life. We talk about foods, we talk about foods to avoid, foods to consume, we talk about protein intake, we talk about exercises that he thinks about as a 70-year-old in terms of what are some of the low-level activity and high-level activity exercises that he wants to be able to perform throughout his life. And then we talk about biomechanics and specifically the biomechanics of the feet and why this is so important for exercises like squats and walking and overall health and well-being. And we talk about his new company, Paluva, which is a five-fingered uh, or five-toed shoe, I should say, uh, which is 
absolutely gorgeous. I have a pair and we were talking a lot about some of the functionality of that as well. So this is a jam packed conversation. I think you're going to get a lot of value at it. Please share with anyone far and wide who you think will benefit from living a long, healthy life to 70 and beyond. All right, please enjoy my conversation with Mark Sisson. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness, helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Elementy Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. Mark Sisson, I am delighted to welcome you to the Better Podcast today. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so excited for our conversation. You are somebody that I have followed personally for many, many years, have implemented a lot of the principles that you have spoken public about, publicly about, that you've written about. And so this is like the pleasure is all mine to host this conversation. And I think we're going to have a really fun, super juicy, nerdy conversation, the best kinds, of course, on, <laughs> uh, on longevity, on biomechanics, on exercise, food, and how all of those can uh, really augment uh, the experience that someone has in their life. So I'm excited to excited to have it with you. 
Awesome. Me too. Yeah. So let's, um, one of the things that I uh, sort of admire, I'll just start with my admiration really for you is that you're someone who really walks the walk. There are a lot of people who are in the, you know, health space and the longevity space in, you know, just in general online, um, who talk about, um, longevity and health span. And really you are one of the people that I see who really walks the walk, talks the talk. And certainly like, if, do you mind sharing your age, how old you are now? <laughs> I'm 70 now. You're 70 now. And you look yeah. like, like this is like you, you and your wife truly are goals for me, uh, in terms of how to really extract every, every inch of, you know, happiness and joy and vitality, um, out of life. So I thought we might, I thought we might start with talking about food because food, um, as you know, many people have said is, is medicine. Uh, you certainly have talked about this in a lot of your work and for a 70 year old, let's say, um, or someone who's 50 or 60, what are some of the things that we want to think about when we're thinking about health, not, not just longevity. So longevity is like the light, like how long we live, but mm -hmm. how good those years are. So our health span, like the, the, the years that we spent that are good, not on medication, you know, have independent, have an independent life, have excellent mobility, all the things. What are some of the foods that you think about that can help augment that experience to increase your health span? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's funny, uh, recently protein has been making it the rounds as the sort of, uh, preeminent macronutrient. That the popular should... girl at the, at the high school. Finally. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I like to start with the things that we shouldn't be eating though. That's kind of sure. the, Let's start you there. know, I, I, I think, um, you know, if you, if you understand how the body works and if you understand how, um, things can go wrong with the signaling that happens in the body as a result of the food that we eat or the accumulation of fat or the accumulation of toxins or the accumulation of reactive oxygen species, free radical damage and things like that, then you would, you would start by getting rid of, uh, sugar and, uh, sweetened beverages and sweetened, you know, extra sweetened, whatever, pies, cakes, candies, cookies, the dessert sort of stuff. Um, and when you talk, when you talk about old people, if it, it, it used to feel to me like, uh, people who were, uh, in their 60s and 70s and 80s, just had to have dessert, right? Dessert was like the most important part of the meal, yeah. uh, part of the culture, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yet it's, it's pretty clear that uh, the less sugar we burn over a lifetime, the better off we are. So no matter what age you are, I would say starting by uh, identifying those areas of your diet that contain sugars, added sugars, um, be a great place to start. Then I would go to the industrial seed oils. Again, those have been making the rounds the last 10 years, but, but basically understanding that many of these oils, soybean oil, corn oil, safflower, sunflower, um, canola, they are antithetical to health and yet they're pervasive. They're in all of the processed foods that we eat for the most part. So you get rid of the sugars, you get rid of the industrial seed oils. For most people, you might want to get rid of processed grains. And now you come down to a fairly, a fairly short list of, of foods that I would say are um, acceptable for a diet that is intended to improve um, muscle mass, to improve energy, um, to increase longevity. And it's meat, fish, fowl, eggs, nuts, seeds, vegetables, fruit, maybe some starchy tubers, right? So it's, um, it's, a, it's a fairly short list. Now, the good news is there are so many things that we can put on these foods, so many sauces and dressings and toppings and methods of preparation and way of cooking them and 
herbs and spices that we can create a pretty much infinite uh, variety of taste opportunities uh, in creating a diet based around that sort of uh, a list. And I want to be clear that I enjoy food. So my, even though I would say food is, you know, 80% of uh, what most people have to overcome when they're trying to uh, regain excellent health, get your diet dialed in and you will be well on your way toward uh, regaining energy and vitality and health. Um, and having said that, I still love food and I still want to make sure that every bite of food I put in my mouth tastes fantastic. So um, I do, um, you know, curate my my daily diet from that sort of a list, um, but make sure that I am able to enjoy, uh, you know, the occasional treat here or there, you know, the occasional uh, piece of dessert, if you will, or a bite of dessert, the occasional uh, slice of pizza once in a while. Um, but I would say that it's, the, it's number one, avoiding the sugars and the industrial seed oils, which is, which is key. And then focusing on protein as the, as the primary macronutrient that would, uh, you know, be the centerpiece of, of every meal that you eat. Yeah. And protein um, is one of the, I think it is the only macronutrient that really our requirement changes as we age, right? So, you know, we've, you've talked about limiting our carbohydrates, maybe through the, the entire lifespan. But as we age, I think that it becomes more important to increase our uh, protein as we age because of some of the things that can set in like more anabolic resistance for the, for the muscle tissue itself, insulin resistant naturally as well. And then just the natural, if you're not being strategic about it, and we'll talk about um, exercise in a moment, but if you're not being strategic about how to preserve lean muscle mass, uh, you're losing about a percent of it a year, right? So you're losing about 10% per decade, let's say, on average. And uh, of that, when we're losing muscle fibers, when when we sort of divide it into muscle fiber type, you're also losing proportionately more type two fibers. We mm-hmm. lose our speed, we lose our explosive ability, our power um, as well. So these are, it is very, and I would love for you to weigh in on on your thoughts around protein and the sort of changing requirements. If you if you adhere to that, I mean, I've just- Yeah, no, it. I totally adhere to it. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I'd say, um, because I've always been uh, a fan of protein and I've always uh, had protein lead the way when I'm, crafting and eating strategy protein as we as we get older you know we lose some of the digestive enzymes that we count on as as for younger people um and digestive enzymes are necessary to break down these proteins that we eat into amino acids that the body can use it's a uh, a combination of maybe because we don't absorb as much of the amino acids we need to eat more protein just to present the opportunity to the body um, it's also a reason that many people, I think, would be well advised to consume dietary uh, enzyme supplements, right? Dietary supplements that are that are enzymatic in nature um, that would assist in the digestion of those proteins. Having said that, you, you know, there's a point at which I think you, you can't really absorb more than say 50 grams of protein in a meal. I mean, that's just a, it's a giant steak or whatever. So. Um, I think, you know, now if we're talking about, you know, people as you're getting into your 60s and 70s and you see that decline in in muscle mass, that's where maybe a protein supplement, you know, a shake or something in the morning yeah. uh, could be useful to kind of shore up those uh, those protein sores if you're not. And I think a lot of people as they get older tend to, their appetite tends to diminish a little bit as well. 
So you're going to really have to be careful about uh, making sure that you you take in enough protein. But again, that's really on the on the like I'm not even there yet. I'm a, you know I'm 70. I'm not even. I'm, I'm that's later on down the road. But my my in laws, for instance, are in their 80s and early 90s. So we have to be re- really careful that they get enough protein. Yeah, and that's where the the shakes uh, you know come into come into play. And it's interesting, I'm, I'm often asked, so I wrote a book on um, the introduction of the ketogenic diet for women and why it's important for as a, as a proxy for improving insulin sensitivity and some of the things that we've been talking about. But even in my, um, call it formulation of that ketogenic diet, so it's like very low on carbohydrates, but still quite moderate um, in its protein. I still, I was asked recently, like, do you still recommend the ketogenic diet? And it's like, yes, I do. For someone who has been, let's say, eating a standard American diet for however many years and is used to some of these hyper palatable foods, um, who's been, ha- who hasn't, has no idea how many carbohydrates, let's say that they're, that they're taking in, it's probably under, uh, you know, undernourished and on their, on their protein intake. Mm-hmm. I do think that it's a wonderful, um, therapeutic intervention for someone to improve their insulin sensitivity, to teach their body, you know, with, when you combine it with fasting and things like that, to teach, you know, to get your body into that sort of lipolytic, that fat burning keto ketone producing kind of state. And I think long-term what we've been talking about with increasing your protein over time, I think that that is a really smart strategy, especially when, you know, I always like to start with nutrition with people, as you said, you know, if you you dial in your nutrition, you are going to be further ahead than, you know, probably 80% of 80% of, uh, you know, Americans, let's say. Mm. Uh, and then you can start layering, you can start habit stacking with other things like lifting weights and sprints and other cardiopulmonary, you know, activity. Then we can start playing around with your protein requirements because then they're going to also go up as well. Um, I wanted to ask you a question because you mentioned like 50 grams of protein. I often see And this is, um, you know, you're one of the first people to talk about, at least as far as I can tell, um, around this concept of metabolic flexibility, which is that glycolytic, lipolytic, um, being able to sort of switch sugar burner, fat burner. Mm -hmm. Um, What I see now online um, is almost a, uh, we'll say a distortion, I think, of what your original principles were talking about. Whereas sometimes you'll see people say you have to have 30 grams every morning, like 30 grams of the, you know, 30 grams at breakfast and 30 grams every meal. And then it's like, okay, but sometimes I, I work out fasted. And then, you know, and then other times I have 55 grams of protein in the morning. Cause I wake up hungry and, you know, or I have leg day that day. And I know I want to, you know, make sure that my, my legs and my body have the substrate in order to kind of perform the activity that I want. Um, I would love for you to talk a little bit about, maybe we'll say the original intention of metabolic flexibility, and then how we can also use that principle to induce more cognitive uh, flexibility as well when we're thinking about nutrition. Sure. Well, you know, the, the idea of metabolic flexibility um, is it's pretty simple. It's just uh, it's tapping upon the genetic recipe that we all have to be able to extract energy from whatever fuel source is required for the work being done at the time. So what it means is if you're metabolically flexible, you can extract energy from the fat stored on your body uh, when you're doing uh, low-level and even some high-level aerobic work, um, certainly as you're cruising around all day long throughout the day. Um, if you're metabolically flexible, you can derive energy from the fat on your plate of food, from the glycogen in your muscles when you're doing glycolytic work, when you're in the gym doing heavy, heavy lifting or high-intensity stuff, uh, from the glucose in your bloodstream, which is what's fueling your your brain uh 
at least most people who uh, who are glucose dependent throughout the day. So you can burn the glycogen in your muscles. You can burn the glucose in your bloodstream. Um, there's glycogen in your liver. Of course, you can tap into that. You can access the ketones that your liver makes in the absence of glucose. So metabolically flexible, um, it, it's the, the flexibility is a is what I call the holy grail. And and so it's not about okay, you must be keto to get there, or you must be doing intermittent fasting to get there, or you must be uh, combination vegan like Mark Hyman would talk about, or I'd rather be vegan or whatever. It doesn't. It almost doesn't matter. There are ways in which you can develop this flexibility so that you become good at burning fat. You become fat adapted, as we say, and keto adapted. You get to the space where your body builds the metabolic machinery to burn fats more efficiently, more effectively. The mitochondria increase in number, their efficiency increases. Now you can become really good at burning fats. When you become that efficient at burning fats, the muscles go, hey, we, we don't need ketones. I mean, you know, we, we save that for the brain. And so the brain relies in the absence of glucose can now thrive in the presence of ketones. And so you develop this, again, this flexibility, this metabolic flexibility and metabolic efficiency that then translates into uh, more energy all day long, uh, greater resistance to uh, metabolic disease, greater tendency to um, to build or preserve muscle mass, greater tendency to do those, um, greater ability to, 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 to put those on. And the the number one benefit is, is your hunger dissipates. Your hunger and appetite and cravings decrease. And so now you have control over your life because you know that in the absence of any sort of upcoming meal, your body's just going to say, yep, that's, I'm going to need 500 calories for the next six hours. I'm going to take it off my butt or my thighs or my hips or, or, or intramuscularly or whatever, wherever the fat exists. And if I go to the gym and, I'm, and, I'm, and I haven't eaten since last night, which happens to me all the time, I go to the gym and I do heavy leg days fasted. Some people would say that's not wise, but I'm I'm not only able to do it, I feel good doing it, and I feel like it's um, enhancing that metabolic flexibility because I'm I'm burning fat in the interim when I'm not doing the glycolytic work of the heavy leg day, and yet when I'm doing the glycolytic work of that of that day, um, my body doesn't forget how to burn glucose. It doesn't forget how to burn glycogen. That's always there, um, and so you become this sort of empowered individual who, who's able to um, kind of take advantage of all of the, the benefits that uh, a, a, a strong, powerful, healthy human being um, can provide for oneself if they do the right work. And I think there's something to say about the joy that that can that brings back, that can bring back to your life. You had mentioned, you know, I want my food to taste good and we don't want to be nitpicking about, oh, like what, what, what oil was it? I mean, maybe you want to be concerned about the oil, as you mentioned with the seed oils, but it, you can, you can rest assured that your body's going to know what to do, how to assimilate the, uh, you know, the cells, tissues, glands, organs, whatever, with whatever you're giving it. And, you know, if you travel to Europe, as sometimes we do, and you have a a cornetto in the morning with a cappuccino, you know, it's, it's fine if you're doing that here and there, right. Um, rather than beating your, cause I, and I, I say this from sort of experience with my community in that sometimes we are, and my community is t- tends to be female and they're very, they need to get it right. Everything needs to be right all the time. There's sort of this orthorexic kind of tendency that I notice, particularly my high achieving women and they just beat themselves up. They have a croissant and they're, you know, yeah. or they have an extra slice of cheesecake or whatever, and they're off the rails for days. Yeah. It's like if you just 
trusted in like just get back. Well, and, and they're not metabolically off the rails. They're just mentally off the rails. It's right. Not, you know, they, 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 they violated some code that they set with themselves. Um, look, I, I, I've been there. I know that. But, but the whole point, the point of metabolic flexibility is to be able to have that croissant or to be able to have that piece of cheesecake and not have it be a, a, a guilt session and not have to go to therapy to deal with the, with the aftermath of it. The metabolic flexibility describes this ability to go in and out of all these different substrates and not be um, at the effect mentally uh, from having, you know, uh, uh, overdosed on sugar when you were keto for the last, you know, eight weeks and all of a sudden you have a, you have a 300 gram carb day. Um, yeah, that's not, you know, that that's not the sort of thing I'm, I'm, I'm espousing. But if you're metabolically flexible, you can, you can have a 200 gram carb day and a zero gram carb day followed and, and one after the other. And if you do this right, and if you become metabolically flexible, which includes doing the high intensity work, doing the occasional intermittent fasting. So you do skip meals, um, eating sometimes what I would call fractally. So some days eating two meals, some days eating no meals, some days eating three meals, some days eating one meal, some days a big meal, a small meal. There's no, there's no, um, uh, you know, order of events that you have to consume food in to dial in some optimal, perfect uh, way in which you extract the energy and, and build the muscle. It's again, it all comes back to the, what I call this holy grail, this metabolic flexibility. If you built the flexibility, now you have the leeway to play around in the margins and then come back. And for me, be because I like to eat and and I, I don't like being so dogmatic on my diet, um, I, I want to be able to play in the margins. I want to be able to have go to Europe and have pasta and pizza. Not every day, but but certainly more than once in a while, shall we say, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but knowing that I've done the work and knowing that that as long as I don't use that, uh, you know, having having gone outside the margins for a length of time, as long as I don't do it for weeks weeks on end, I'll come back to center. I'll come back to this this metabolically flexible person who can, you know, I mean, I suppose if you eat that cheesecake, you could say if I'm, I'm metabolically flexible, all right, tomorrow's a leg day because I ate the cheesecake, I loaded my glycogen, I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna take advantage of my carbo loading that I did inadvertently because I had, you know, an extra shot of tequila or whatever, um, and now tomorrow will be a leg day. Um, you can have fun with this, you can play around with it rather than. Have it be this dogmatic thing that that in the event that you stray, you beat yourself up. I'm so happy you're talking about this because I think that what goes along with metabolic flexibility is this cognitive flexibility as well, this ability to use your words to play in the margins. Because, you know, I was talking to a, a friend recently, she just launched a book and we were texting about how busy she was and how overwhelming it was and how she hasn't slept and all this. And I said, you know, but what is the point? of always being perfectly, always in bed at nine o'clock. Like if you're always making these health deposits into your health bank account, let's say, sometimes you want to make a withdrawal, right? Sometimes you want to not sleep because you're launching a book or maybe you don't need to launch a book to understand this example, but you know, to go to Italy and have pasta and pizza, you know, like it's fine to play in the margins, as you said. And also to, you know, I often will say like the stress and the shame and the guilt and then the cortisol, like the, 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 the sort of stress hormones that, that 
follow that are probably more damaging than the extra slice of cheesecake or the shot of tequila or whatever it was, because that lasts for days. You know, I sort of see people beating themselves up for days on end. So, 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 so happy um, that you've articulated, uh, articulated that. And there's some softness, right? Like there's some ability to play with that, which is lovely. Well, you know, at the end of the day, um, and, and I've said this for a long time, you know, I, we're here to generally seek pleasure, enjoyment, contentment, fulfillment, uh, pride, a little bit of hedonism. You know, we're here to seek the moments, uh, the real-time moments, like right now, that that we are able to breathe in and smell and take in and enjoy. And if all we do is, as you say, build up that that savings account by depositing healthy behaviors and choices and never get a chance to extract the marrow from life, um, it defeats the purpose. It, it's like the guys, many of whom I know, who work their whole life building a business. And in so doing, they forego uh, playing golf with their buddies. They forego going to soccer games with their kids. They forego dinners with their wives. Um, and, you know, at the end of 20 years of doing this, maybe they've made a lot of money, but have they, you know, they, they haven't enjoyed life to its fullest in the real moments that life is all about. So I see that with people who are or orthorexic, as you mentioned, in their dietary um, strategies, and, and and certainly the same goes for their exercise strategies. I mean, there are people who, um, you know, I'm, I'm writing a book on walking now because I've discovered walking is the thing everybody should be doing. And I was a runner for uh, three decades, and I, I would beat myself up if I missed a day of running, if, or if there was something scheduled, you know, at the track that I was supposed to do, and I didn't feel like doing it or didn't have the, not that I, not that I would choose not to do it, but because I couldn't because of an injury or because of, you know, I was, had a cold or a flu, you know, I, I, I'd start getting on my own case about, uh, you know, that's not tough. That's not, you gotta, you know, you gotta be tough. You gotta get in the trenches. You gotta no pain, no gain, you know, all of these buzzwords that came out of the eighties and nineties that, that, uh, you know, I think made a lot of people really feel guilty about, about their life. When in fact they should be feeling good about their life and, and and seeking the pleasurable moments and 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 have it be such that their diet and their exercise routine were a small subset of this life, but not the primary focus. Yeah, beautifully said. Let's let's talk a little bit about exercise. You mentioned you mentioned running. Um, in in the sort of same vein of uh, longevity, we've been talking about protein and and muscle mass. Um, why? Is muscle mass so integral? Do you think to um, to longevity, to be to fostering independence for mobility? What what? How do you view muscle mass as uh, as a proxy for longevity? Uh, and, and I mean, it's it's not just a proxy; it's just absolutely necessary. Because uh, first of all, if we want to define a quality of life in terms of longevity, it's it's basically two things. I think it's mobility, the ability to move around this world, to walk over to a friend's house or to get on a plane and fly to to Italy. Um, and it's cognition, the ability to have a conversation with that friend next door, or to learn a language when you go to Italy, uh, or access to memories, right? So you can you could create these memories, these experiences that we're talking about, this these these moments of of joy, contentment, fulfillment, satisfaction, and be able to to remember them. So those are the two, I think, defining factors of a quality of life in terms of longevity, mobility and cognition. Now, muscle mass. Well, 
So the, the body, you know, has um, a tendency to want to sit around and do nothing. We are, uh, as, as uh, animate organisms that evolved over millions of years of, uh, you know, uh, life in harsh environments before we were mammals, but even since we were mammals, uh, harsh conditions, uh, scarcity of food, we developed uh, a number of strategies to stay alive long enough to pass our genes along to the next generation. And uh, one of those strategies was the body tends not to want to waste resources doing something it absolutely doesn't have to do. It doesn't want to do. So fat is a great example. You know, we, we have this amazing capacity to, to convert extra calories that we eat, that we overeat. We're wired to overeat. And we convert those into energy that we carry around with us on our bodies directly over the center of gravity. It's an amazingly elegant uh, development. And then when in times of scarcity, we're, we can call upon those stored fat deposits and use those for fuel, combust those to get through the next several days. So we have this, um, this ability uh, to store fat and to burn fat. But the body says... Fat's precious. Like, I don't want to burn fat if I don't have to. And so people tend, like when you talk about people have a high carbohydrate diet, because the body also burns sugar very easily and readily, if all you ever give it is carbohydrate, the body says, I don't, I don't need to tap into these precious fat stores. I'm going to have another carbohydrate meal. I'm going to make more glucose in the next two hours, the next three hours. So there's this tendency to do things that the body, uh, that, that calls upon in it remembers from surviving, you know, two million years ago. Well, building muscle is one of those things. The body doesn't like to waste precious resources um, building muscle unless it has to. So, if you are young and you're playing and you're working and you're, you know, you're you're active, your body builds muscles because it knows you have to. You, you you need the muscles to do that again tomorrow and again the next day. As you get older, the muscle mass decreases, and then as you get even older, the muscle mass starts to it starts to atrophy if you don't do the work those muscles just say we don't need to be strong why we're not lifting anything we're not digging ditches we're not climbing ladders we're just we're just hanging out so why do we need to waste any precious resources being uh, building more muscle or maintaining the muscle that we have so there's a tendency toward toward um, this atrophy but when you look at the body the body the, the muscles are one part of a body that has a lot of different uh, moving parts. So when you're when you decide to move and move hard and fast, your heart says, "Up, oh, okay, I got. I'm called into action. I have to start pumping faster because the brain made a decision to go to the gym and lift weights, or the ma brain made a decision to go out and ride a bike for for two hours. So now the heart says, oh, I, I have to pump harder to supply oxygen and energy to these muscles. The the, the lungs." Uh, they have to, you have to breathe more deeply to take in the oxygen so that the heart can pump that. The liver has to work harder to clear the toxins, to create the, the uh, glycogen for the, uh, to be used to glucose for the brain or to be, to create free fatty acids or ketones. The liver has to be called into action. Uh, the kidneys have to work harder. So all of the organs in the body need to keep up with the demands of the muscle. So when you choose to build muscle, the body is saying, all right, I didn't want to build muscle. I just want to hang out on the sofa and watch TV. But if you're going to go to the gym and do this, all right, the heart has to work harder. The lungs have to work harder. Liver has to work harder and so on. Now, what does that look like? Well, when you're 
80 years old and you get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom um, because your bladder is weak and you trip over the cat and you fall and break your hip, well, you break your hip probably because, first of all, you didn't have the balance and coordination from the muscular strength and development of that of that balanced part of your of your repertoire. Number two, you land on your hip. Your hip is, it breaks because your bone density has failed because you haven't been doing weight-bearing activity. The bones don't need, it's the same thing. The bones are going, why do I need to get strong? If we're not going to do anything hard that's going to that's gonna put us in jeopardy, the bones tend to, they atrophy as well. So if you haven't done deadlifts or things like that in the gym, now, now the, the hip bone uh, fractures easily. So now you've got a broken hip. Now you wind up in the hospital, and typically you go to a hospital with broken hip, you get pneumonia. Well, when you get pneumonia, you, your lungs fill with fluid, and because you haven't been deeply breathing for the last twenty or thirty years, you can't. Your, your lungs are not strong enough to withstand either the pneumonia or the or the or the filling of fluids, or the coughing out of, of of the sputum, the clearing of that. Your heart, which has been beating only at 10 percent capacity for the past twenty years, because you haven't been doing. The, the exercise to require it to stay strong. So the heart has at best now only 10% or maybe 20% of its prior capacity. So now the heart gets overwhelmed and you die of congestive heart failure or you die of septicemia or you die, your, your, your liver gives out or your kidneys give out. It's the weakest organ that, pe so people, Stephanie, people don't die of old age. They die of organ failure. And whatever that weakest link is, it all circles back to muscle mass and and the requirement that when you build muscle mass it requires every organ in the body to keep up with it does that make sense oh that's so well said and like just to add on with that broken hip the other thing we see is like you know you've been talking about the two main things mobility and cognition you see a massive cognitive decline someone who's fractured their hip they have some type of, you know, the dementia that sort of sets in much earlier than it otherwise would, or even their ability to get out of the hospital. I think I read something, oh gosh, it was a couple months ago now, but um, something like 50% of people who go into the hospital, this is CDC data, 50% mm -hmm. of people who go into the hospital never get out. Yeah. That's like they're <laughs> incapacitated. Like if you're 70, like you're just, you know, 70 and above, if you're not thinking about muscle mass, you are one fall away from dying. You yeah. Know, it, it is, it is very it's a brutal. It's a, it's, it's a brutal thing to say. And yet it's so real. If you, and if you look yeah. at the statistics, what I just described is not a unique one-off yeah. scenario. It, it, that's how it, that's the cascade of what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, to your point, at least what I observe, it, you can sort of get away with not doing resist, even though I don't agree with it, but you can get away twenties, thirties, you can kind of get away with not doing, you know, having a strategic plan for that. But the, uh, the rate of decline in health that I have observed in women, I mean, my community is mainly women, but this applies for men and women in their forties and fifties, and then in their fifties and sixties, it's non-linear which I think is also important to consider because I think that humans, we tend to think, you know, there's a graph, there's an X and a Y axis, and then there's like a straight line or a straight line, but yeah. it's really an exponential decline yep. sort of after 40. And for women who are going through menopause uh, or at least, it, you know, in their forties or in perimenopause and then somewhere around 50, 51, 52, they enter in through, uh, enter into um, 12 consecutive months without um, a period. What, 
their experience is like with lower muscle mass. You know, you mentioned the liver being able to uh, process fuel more efficiently and, you know, detoxify the body. Like this is also a really big deal for hot flashes. If you can't detoxify properly and you can't metabolize your estrogens in the way that you used to, you're going to have, you're going to have a really rough time, um, in menopause. And then the sleep changes, the, th- you know, the thermoregulatory changes that happen in perimenopause, the mood and the affect, all of these things can be positively influenced with regular resistance training of some kind. I mean, it's a magic pill. If there, if there was a panacea for people over 50, um, it would be lifting weights. And it's not a big, you know, it's not a huge commitment. I mean, it's twice a week for most people. Um, but you know, with, with specific, guidelines and done appropriately uh you don't need to do that much to make to to achieve incredible benefits that that last a long time i am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery heart health and overall aging well I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount, that is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. So let's say we have someone who is dedicated. They're like, okay, Listen to Mark. I'm going to go twice a week. What are some of the movement patterns that you want to see somebody be able to do, uh, let's say in their 40s, and maybe they, they gain mastery of that over, you know, let's say the course of the next decade? What are some things that you want to see a 50 or a 60-year-old be able to do really well in the gym? Um, squats. I mean, starting with air squats. Uh, I'd like to see somebody do 50 air squats, um, maybe three sets of 50 if it, if it gets to that. But be able to do air squats. Uh, to move from that to weighted squats. So squats, uh, some form of de- deadlift. So the hex bar deadlift, and again, doesn't have to be a lot of weight, but a hex bar deadlift is probably the single greatest exercise that, that someone can do, I think. Um, and it's funny, as a, as a former runner, I didn't do a deadlift until I was in my 40s. I did, it, it was antithetical to running, I guess, I thought, but it wasn't. It, it actually turns out that um, some of the top runners now are deadlifting. Uh, for for the very reason that you want that muscle strength to uh, you know that that maximum sustained power on top of the endurance, um, I would do some um, you know lunges. Um, I would do leg presses. Um, I would hamstring curls of some kind for the lower body, and then for the upper body, I'd do um, dips, and they can be assisted dips. You know, they have these machines that you can yeah. you, you can you don't have to do your dip your whole body weight. Same with pull ups. I would do pull ups. So pull-ups, push-ups, dips, planks, um, you know, most of these are, are using body weight as the primary driver of the force. Uh, and therefore, a lot of these can be done in the home. I think a lot of work can be done with a resistance band, you know, just doing uh, flies, uh, you know, uh, lateral raises and flies with a, with a uh, 
You can do it laundry. Uh, you can do it with laundry bottles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you don't have weights, yeah. like you just yeah, grab yeah, yeah. some laundry, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But there's probably, you know, uh, it's only eight exercises that people I think need to do. I think they, you know, they, it, as they get older, they need to stretch a little bit. Um, so, so a day of, I do a day of dedicated stretching, uh, once a week and that's new to my repertoire. And that's also because I, um, a couple of reasons. Number one, I don't, I don't, I only lift twice a week. Um, you know, you, you could lift three times a week, I guess, but, but it, it, when you start, but as you get better and as you start to, um, actually do the kind of things that build muscle, you realize that if you're doing it right, you can't recover in two days or three days from that workout. In other words, if you're able to do it again the next day and the next day, you're probably not working hard enough to, to create that thing, that signal in the body where the body says, okay, I, I see what he's doing or she's, you know, she's ramping up the intensity. Now we have to get stronger before I could do all that stuff. I, I got used to it. I could hang, I could, I could keep up, but you want to trick the body into, into making those changes that it theoretically doesn't want to make. You want to trick the body into building more muscle, not allowing you, yourself to atrophy because the body tends to want to just, you know, chill out and, and, and decline. And by the way, I mean, that's, uh, until 40 years ago, you know, most people, when they were 60 or 65, they were over the hill, old, decrepit, uh, waiting for the Grim Reaper, right? Unless they were, you know, very active or out on the, uh, you know, out on the farm, you know, uh, getting up every morning and milking the cows and doing all the activity stuff. But most people, when they worked in a, in a factory setting and retired, they just withered away after a couple of years. Cause that the, that's the body saying, you know, it's, uh, there's no reason to build muscle mass because we don't work anymore. So you got to trick the body into doing these things sometimes. And so those two days of lifting a week, are those full body days for you? Is that your protocol? Yeah, yeah right I would say oh, they are. Yeah. I, I okay. think, uh, again, you're asking like if somebody was going to start from scratch, I'd do two days a week of full body training and then I'd walk twice a week. And then I do one day a week of sprint training. Now, I don't mean running on the track necessarily, but what I mean is, high intensity stuff where you're on like an assault bike or you're on a versa climber or you want a uh, even a stationary bike yeah 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 exactly the the concept yeah. the concept rowers yeah, yeah any of those things um where you get your heart rate you just go all out for 30 seconds and then rest for two minutes or three minutes and then go all out for 30 seconds and then do that again so you know i wrote these uh guidelines probably 20 years ago the primal blueprint uh, the 10 basic primal blueprint laws and three of them were move around a lot at a low level of activity. That's the walk and move all day long. Like stay, get up from your desk and walk around and, and go for a walk and make calls on, on a walk and, and, and don't think of walking as a substandard exercise. It's actually one of the best things we can do as humans. It really re, it, and it's not about burning calories either because you don't want to think in terms of, well, if I walk, I don't burn as many calories as I run. No, if you walk, you're putting your body through these planes of motion. You're out in fresh air. You're you're reinforcing a a, a strong uh, gait. Uh, you're burning nothing but fats while you're doing it, so you're not burning glucose or carbohydrates when you're doing that. So move around a lot at a low level of activity. That's the walking or or cycling or swimming or other activities, of course. Lift twice a week. Um, if you want, I mean, as I say, if you're really serious and you want to do three times a week, figure figure out if you can do that. But I say lift twice a week and then sprint once a week. And that's the basic, again, that's another template that will get you to 80% of your potential in terms of your um, strength, 
power and fitness level. And what is the what is the time uh, in terms of recommending uh, time? 40, for- 45 minutes to an hour in the gym. Um, an hour, over an hour is too much. Usually an hour is, is too much for a lot of people. I say, you know, 35 to 45 minutes is kind of a nice little sweet spot there. Um, I mean, I, I go to the gym. <laughs> It's it's my it's my cheers. It's my happy hour. I, I talk. I see people that I know at the gym, so I'll I'll be there an hour. I love only, the gym. It's so yeah. much fun. I love the I, people there. I don't see them anywhere else in my life. Yeah. Like it's so great. Yeah, exactly. So so I do my thirty five minutes of work, but yeah. I'll take an hour to do it, or an hour ten, or whatever. And what about um, walking? How long would you recommend walking? Like how oh, many I'm, minutes you, per week can you rack up? Do you think? Oh, uh, let's see. Uh, Two hundred minutes a week. Would be a good. Uh, let's. That's an hour three times a week plus a twenty minute one in between. It's. I think walking is is. Uh, it's again. I think it's the best thing you can do, and almost it's almost like more is better. Um, but th- is there a minimum? No, you can. The other day I had a bunch of uh, things to do at podcasts. I had business meetings, so I went out and walked for half an hour. Came back, did a podcast. Went out and walked for half an hour. Came back, did a business call. Went out and walked for half an hour. And came back, and it it was a day that you know I wasn't going to lift that day because I'd lifted the day before. I need my recovery from 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 the lifting, and I think walking is is also um, anti catabolic. Running is catabolic. Running tears you down. Now, for a lot of people, it's so is weightlifting. <laughs> yeah. Well, weightlifting can be if you again yeah. if you do it too much, but weight yeah. li- weightlifting certainly anabolic if you do it right. Mm-hmm. Running is t- tends to be catabolic. It tends to like if you've seen the the best marathoners in the world they have no upper body muscle and they lift weights they just can't keep it on it's catabolic the running is 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 really creating the the the, the smallest efficient machine it can make uh so you know i i'm i'm trying to give people permission to stop running and start walking more. and walking includes hiking and rocking which is a big new thing now and if you yeah, I was going to ask you what what yeah. you thought about rucking. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I have a tw- I have a twenty pound weight vest uh, that I walk with sometimes. I love walking uh, uphill. Uh, if like if the weather's inclement and I'm at a, at the gym and I'm listening to a podcast, I'll literally get on a treadmill, which I never thought I'd do in my entire life. But I'll get on a treadmill with a, a vest on and go, you know, uh, t- a ten percent incline. That's a great workout. It gets the heart rate up. Um, again, it's 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 not jarring to the body the way running would be it's just promoting uh all of the right sort of um kinetic pathways from the bottom of the foot to the top of course i do this in in a special kind of shoes yes well (laughs) (laughs) well this is a perfect segue mark to uh one of the one of the things i wanted to talk about was you know rucking and walking and all these things are very important but it's also important to be doing them right in the same way that if you're going to be squatting, let's say, you know, you said start off with air squats. My uh, experience when I was um, full-time in clinical practice, at least, was that not many people knew how to squat properly. And part of that was poor ankle dorsiflexion. So the flexion of the ankle joint was very limited, which would cause sort of a buckling in, uh, you know, doctors will call this genuvalgum, but it's basically like where your knees become knock-kneed. And then there's like either a posterior or an anterior pelvic tilt in order to compensate for it. So people were not squatting properly. Right. And I and I, I wanted to um, talk about the importance of walking and even some of the other exercises that we've been mentioning, like squatting and deadlifting and all of that, lunging and all of that really is, it's important to get your biomechanics right. And we can start at the feet because, uh, you know, 
I'm, I'm right now I'm wearing your shoes, your Paluva shoes. I don't know if we can, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can probably see my, see my Paluvas there. I wear them all day during the day and let's see yours. Ah, you got the white ones. <laughs> I got the Miami's on. Yeah. <laughs> I like those. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about the aesthetics in a minute because I was very, yeah. you know, this, I was very impressed with it, but we have 25% of our bones are in our foot. Um, and then just for the nerds that are listening, so there's 20, uh, 25% of the bones, so 26 bones, 33 joints, 107 ligaments, 19 muscles. Like this is an important part of the body to be moving properly. So talk about feet, the, the importance of, uh, we'll just start with walking and we can, we can graduate to sure. movement well, Let's talk about the, the, just generally the importance of foot health. I think yeah. foot health is the new sleep. I think it's been overlooked for far too long. Um, if you think about it, our feet are our main connection to ground, to the earth. We use our feet to do everything from standing to squatting to moving around to walking to climbing. Um, we use our feet all day, every day. And then uh, we encase them typically in these uh, narrow shoes that have lots of cushion on the bottom. And and what that's doing is it's t- it's taking away all of the input that's necessary for the foot to inform the body how to move. So to take a step back, if we're born barefoot, clearly, and uh, we uh, we go through, we you know, we evolved, we we evolved barefoot um, over millions of years. Uh, the foot is is incredible appendage that has tens of thousands of sensory uh, neurons, nerves in the bottom of the foot. And every time you take a step forward, those 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 nerves inform the brain exactly how to flex the foot ankle, how to bend the knee, how to torque the hip, how to flex certain muscles to absorb shock. When you're sprinting, a different thing happens, but but it's the same concept. It's it's informing the legs of how to move, the knee how to bend, the hip how to move, the hip how to twist. Um, And and it relies on this sensory input. And now when we encase these feet in, in shoes and we put a cushion underneath, all that sensory input is lost. And now the foot has no uh, guidance for the brain as to what what do you do if you step sideways on a rock or if you step in a in a in a chuck hole or a, or a, a squirrel hole on a field while you're jogging across a field and you roll an ankle why does that happen well because if if you were barefoot you probably wouldn't roll your ankle because you're by the time your foot moved enough over the hole the brain will go okay we've got to bend the knee now you really got to bend the knee and absorb that shock and absorb that and, and absorb that that shift in terrain and balance. So foot health is is critical and we've completely bypassed it. We've completely overlooked it. Um, I was thinking the other day, you know, they, they use grip strength as a proxy for um for vitality and robustness in old people, right? It's sort of a again, it's a proxy for how how strong you are throughout your body. I think foot mobility should also be a proxy because so many people have such horrible um, they've got osteoarthritis, they've got bunions, they've got plantar fasciitis, fungal infections because they've been enclosed in these, you know, steamy hot coffins for so long. So the when, when you talk about going to the gym and how you use your feet at the gym, like when you're doing deadlifts, most of the top lifters will say they they will not lift in cushioned shoes because your your knees are too delicate to trust that this little BOSU ball that you're standing on is going to withstand a thousand pounds of the deadlift. So they would rather deadlift barefoot because they have complete contact with the ground and they've literally screwed their feet into the ground. They've, they've 
widened their toes. They've splayed their toes out. So they have the, the greatest surface area of a, of a pedestal, if you will, to, from which to pull, from which to lift. Um, these are, uh, if, 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 and then translate that over into, uh, squats and lunges. I mean, if you're doing, if you're doing lunges, you want, you want the knee to bend appropriately. But you, in order to do that, you don't want to be trusting a, a thick cushioned running shoe that looks great, but is rotating your knees to one side or the other with no haptic input from your feet, which are actually in, t- in contact with the ground the second you lunge forward. Um, those are, I think, examples of how you can really mess yourself up if you start doing heavy weights in thick padded running shoes or t- traditional traditional sneakers, if you will. So um, um, I looked at this years ago and I, and I was I've always been upset at how narrow shoes are. I've always felt like my toes needed more room within the shoes. Even if I bought like an E or a double E width shoe, I've always, they, even though they're wide at the metatarsal, they still sort of come together at a point at the toe. So I, um, I took a look at all of the prior attempts at minimalist footwear and I said, let's, you know, let's combine the best elements, uh, of an optimal shoe, which would be, first of all, the individually articulated toe box. So we have five, these are five-toed shoes because you want your toes to be able to splay outwardly for sure, uh, laterally, but also you want them to be able to articulate up and down. If you step on different surfaces, if you want, if you step on a, on a certain small rock, you want that whatever toe is hitting the rock, you want the toe to bend up and you want it, you want it to feel the ground. You want, you want the massage effect of walking over cobblestones or walking over rocky trails and having it feel amazing, having it feel wonderful. Like, like, how did, how did I ever hike in a stiff soled hiking boot when I can, uh, I can feel more connected with the earth, more connected with the ground, more solid with my footing, wearing a thin soled shoe that has five toes on it. So we, we developed a shoe to be, first of all, comfortable. I think it's the most comfortable shoe you'll ever wear. Once you, once you understand and, and you, and you start to wear these. It's like a glove. Feels like a glove. Exactly. Number two, it's functional. So it allows your feet to, to do what a foot is supposed to do. We say, let feet be feet. Um, it, it allows your foot to splay out, allows your foot to adapt to the changes in terrain. We call that ground feel. You can feel the ground underneath and that's a good thing. And, and then we gave them attractive uppers. So we, we combined comfort, function and style to create this, this line of shoes we call Paluva. And, uh, it's, it's catching on all over in many different areas. We've got a lot, a lot of movement specialists, a lot of physical therapists, um, a lot of uh, uh, trail runners who are who are hiking on their non-running days. They're hiking for hours at a time in Paluvas, strengthening their feet while they're walking. So they're not even running in these. They're just they're just hiking, but hiking for a couple of hours. Guy, uh, people are rucking in them again. That's just hiking with a with a backpack. Of course, a lot of people in the gym. A lot of I go to my gym down the street. Of course, a lot of my friends are there, and I'll go. Now it's great to see twenty people wearing my shoes in the gym, and all uh, feeling like they're they're improving the health of their feet as a result of that. Yeah, and I would I would say too, like in, in sort of the spirit of transparency, I had to reteach myself to squat because I, you know, probably very similar to you, you know, wore the Adidas and the Nike and the Reeboks and the New Balances and all of these different um, shoes growing up. And when I was, I would always injure myself at exactly the same weight. Like I get to 185 pounds on the squat and without, like 
I could predict that I was going to, my knee was going to blow out. I was going to eat something on my knee or something on my hip. And then I'd have to come all the way back down, you know, back to the barbell and then rehab all the things that, you know, you go to the chiropractor, you go to the physio, you get the massage, all the things. And then you work back up and then I would do the same thing over and over again. So I started taking my shoes off. Um, and what I, when I was squatting and what I found was my ankle mobe, my ankle, my ability to dorsiflex, my ability to bring my whole foot up towards me. Mm-hmm. Very, very poor. My ability to splay. So, you know, the pollu- as you said, like the Paluva shoe has like five individual sort of little glove, you know, like little place for your toes. I had a really hard time. Uh, you know, one of the cues for squatting is to sort of think about a triangle, right? So you like you splay the big toe, splay the pinky, and then you're sort of envisioning the pinky and the big toe and then the calcaneus back to the heel. I had a really mm-hmm. hard time splaying the pinky. And so I had to reteach myself to squat. I still squat and deadlift barefoot. So I do it in my socks or if no one's looking, I probably take my socks off. I may or may not take my socks off. <laughs> uh, but these are the shoes that I wear these since, you know, since receiving these and wearing these, I was, you know, to your point around the aesthetics, I was like, Oh, I'm not sure. Cause I've seen like the Vibrams and I've seen, like, I've seen either friends wear them or I've tried them on. And I'm like, I feel like I look like a hobbit. Um, but they look great. And they, you know, you wouldn't necessarily know that they're a five toe, Right shoe, unless if you're like kind of staring at it and then you're, you know, whereas I think some of the other, let's say shoe uh, makers, I'm thinking about Vibrams, yeah. uh, like, you know, that there's, there, there are five toe shoe. Like you can see the individual articulate, you know, sort of from before the person walks into the room, you can sort of see the toe. Right, there, right, 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 right. But no, for sure. These from the side, they look like a regular yeah. shoe. And, and even yeah. like what I'm wearing right now. Uh, and again, I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll show it to anybody watching on YouTube, but this is a, uh, this hat, this is the Miami. It's a loafer. It's, mm. it's, it's five toed shoe, but it, it's a regular looking loafer. And you see, you see this, this sidewall, right? Oh my God. That looks like a regular, like cushion shoe. That's, that's a fake sidewall. It is shoe. It, we have uh, one centimeter, 1.2 centimeters from the heel to the, to the toe. It just was made to look like a shoe because we wanted it to, we wanted people to, to think, well, oh, it's, you know, it's a great, great shoe that you're wearing there. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it just happens to be very functional and very comfortable at the same time. And that was my biggest, my biggest issue was comfort. I, you know, I mean, my, I have a lot of friends in the shoe business and and that's one of the reasons I was able to enter this space with some confidence. I have a lot of, a lot of friends in the shoe business. Um, some over at on running shoe, which is the most successful running shoe story of the last decade, right? Maybe Hoka, but, um, I can't, and I love the shoes. I think they look good, but I can't wear them. And when I say I can't wear them, I can wear them a little bit. I can wear them for an hour, but then my metatarsals start to cramp. And if, God forbid, I'm asked to walk on concrete for more than, say, two miles, my knees start hurting because, because what happens is, again, they're so thick that, that the foot doesn't know exactly what the terrain underneath looks like. And so the knee has to guess. Because the foot's not telling the brain, the bottom of the feet is not informing the brain of exactly what's going on underneath. Then the knee has to guess, the hip has to guess, and sometimes they guess wrong and you get a knee tweak, right? And uh, that's I think that's what, what happens when you're deadlifting or squatting 180 pounds with Adidas on. The same thing is happening. It's it's because you don't have that input. Um, I mean, imagine, you, feet are just like hands. They really are. Um there's some people who are born without hands who use their feet as if they were hands. So there's that, there's that dexterity, right? But imagine being a pianist and then putting on, um, oven mitts and, and then going off and playing some 
Rachmaninoff piece or something, right, on the piano. It's just, it's not going to happen. Well, that's what you're asking people to do who are wearing traditionally thick, cushioned uh, shoes. And I, I mean, I laugh at them because the, the minimalist movement really took off in 2010, 2011, when, uh, when Chris McDougall wrote Born to Run. Mm. And he described these the nature of the Tarahumara Indians who ran 50 miles a day and did all this cool stuff. And, you know, and he talked about, yes, we're born to run, but we're born to run barefoot. And if we run barefoot, um, then we're forced to run with the proper gait, the proper stride. Most people heel strike and that's bad. But if you, if you don't have cushioned heels and you're running barefoot, you are forced to run with a proper midfoot landing. Um, And so at the time, uh, when minimalist shoes were just getting invented, people glommed on to minimalist shoes and thought, oh, my God, this is amazing. I'm going to start running seven miles in my minimalist shoes. Well, if you haven't trained to run with proper stride, if you haven't trained to run with a with a midfoot landing, um, seven miles of that the first day is, is <laughs> it's, it's deadly on your feet. I mean, people got injured. People got hurt pretty badly because they were taking this concept and embracing it because they hadn't and they hadn't trained for it. So after a few years of that, people came along and thought, okay, this minimalist thing isn't working for runners. Let's take it all the way over the other direction and let's make a maximal shoe. Let's make a really thick shoe and let's let's just encourage people to heel strike, which was the antithesis of what Born to Run was about. So then we had a generation of shoes, these thick, 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 like almost ugly running shoes that people are wearing and 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 they think they're doing themselves a favor because they're running on clouds and they're running on you know pillows and thick cushions, but that's not what's happening. There's, the the rate of injury has not gone down as a, as a result of these. They just get injured in different places. Yeah, and I would say that running, you know, to just for the listener, uh, for as a clarifying point, walking heel strike for like to have a heel strike on walking is hundred percent normal. That's but running do. is a different category of movement, and I actually remember. Uh, a patient of mine teaching me this. I because we were taught in school like heel strike. You know, you heel strike and then you slightly supinate and then your propulsion. You you, you propel off of the uh, the big toe, big toe. Um, which is great for walking. Right? This is the yeah. this is the ideal movement pattern for walking. But I remember my uh, this one patient who I'm thinking of. Uh, he was an ultra marathoner, and he's like, "No, actually, you should hit with the midfoot first, and then just like the heel just comes back and tap, and it's you know sort of taps, and it's so much more efficient in terms of energetic loss, and you know in terms of keeping the ankle, you know, saving the ankle and saving the knee and saving the hips." And I remember thinking like, "Okay, this guy's running, you know, however what's an ultra marathon, fifty, I think fifty miles, something like that." Yeah. I was like, and he's doing this year over year, like there's something to this. So I remember many, many years ago being introduced to this idea that running is a different category of movement than walking. Yes. And that maybe it's the metatarsals that should be, or like the midfoot, we'll say, like the midfoot should hit first and then just the heel kind of just taps. And if you look in the animal kingdom, that's actually how when you see yes. at like high speeds, you see like the, you know, the these like felines that are running at, you know, whatever uh, speed that like they're, they're midfoot, like they're midfoot runners. So um, yeah, no, I just wanted to throw that out there. No, it, it's, it's important that you put it out there because the the midfoot runners are few and far between and so when you look at you know 40,000 people lining up to to, to uh race in a LA marathon or whatever the number is probably you know less than 1% are properly proper runners 
the rest are uh, heel striking. And, you know, it's a, it's a nice life challenge to run a marathon, finish a marathon, but it's not really running. It's, it's, it's jogging and it's doing a, uh, a movement that is not good for the body in the long run. Uh, no pun intended. It's, it's a, you know, so, so walking is a heel, is a heel first gait off the big toe. Running is a midfoot strike. And as you said, the heel, the heel just taps. And that's because true running, uh, whether it's sprinting or even, you know, long distance running at the elite level, um, you're just coiling the, the Achilles, right? The Achilles is one big spring. It's the calf and the Achilles. They stay coiled. And so you, you use the midfoot to just load that coil, that spring, and then bounce off it. Um, you know, 20,000 times or whatever the, whatever the number is of uh, repetitions that you're doing. Um, so that's back to why I'm, I'm, I'm writing this book on, on walking because I think too many people run inappropriately and, and they do so with the idea that it's going to be a, a weight loss strategy for them, right? And it, picking up running, taking up running in, in trying to lose 30 pounds or 40 pounds is not a good idea. It just, it, it, it doesn't work very often. People don't lose that kind of weight. And that's why you see that. And so what many weight people, are you losing? That's the other yeah, question. Is it well, fat? Is it fat? Is it? No, no, no. But, but that's the other part. When I say running is catabolic, it's catabolic for those people too. So they're yeah. literally burning off some of the muscle tissue and not, they're not really burning a lot of fat because the way they're training and the way they're eating, because typically they're carbo loading, you know, to be able to go do it again tomorrow and they're refilling their glycogen stores and they're using, they're depending on glucose for their brain and, and glucose for their glycogen for their muscles. And, and it, it, it precipitates this, this cycle where you go run eight miles and you burn off 750 calories and you tend to go home and eat 900 calories to make up for it. Cause the body go, the, again, the body's going, what, what have you done to me? Mm. You know, this is an unnatural kind of thing that you're choosing to do. And I don't want to, I don't want to waste valuable resources. So I'm not going to tap into my fat stores um, unless you train me how to burn fat. And that's that whole metabolic flexibility thing. So people who are looking to lose weight and run a marathon, I would say, start with the diet, start with walking, right? And, and so get, get your metabolic flexibility ducks in a row, uh, become metabolically flexible, start burning more fat at a higher uh, aerobic output. Um, do it by walking, walk faster and faster until such time as you can maybe throw in a couple of hundred meter um, jogs or, or not sprints, but runs where you're landing appropriately on the midfoot and then walk again and, and kind of train into it slowly. But by all means, try to avoid this heel striking because it just, it's, it's inefficient and it doesn't improve your fitness at all. So what if you're somebody who, let's say you're listening to this um, and you have been an orthotic wearing <laughs> on, oh, on running or whatever company, yeah. um, you know, cushion shoe wearing, we'll say, uh, yeah. bunion do like you have bunions yes. on your feet, uh, Plant plantar we, fasciitis, you have plantar fasciitis, Achilles <laughs> tendonitis, all the things. Yeah. How is it? Do we just start wearing the paluvas? Is there a transition? We st you know, it's the low level activity, as you mentioned. Yeah, it's just, first of all, you're not going to run the paluvas. I'm not going to let you run the paluvas for a long, long time. So wear them when you're not running. Wear them when you're walking around the house. Wear them when you're going on, a, on, when you're out walking the dog. A lot of people 
report back to me. The first time I wore my pelvis was when I was out walking the dog and it was dark and so no one could see me. Uh, <laughs> right. Cause I was afraid I was going to get called out for the five toed shoes and then they get used and then they say, Oh my God, they actually look pretty nice. They look great. I love them now. Um, but I would start relatively slowly, but, e but even if you're reasonably fit, like I have people walk five miles the first day and go, dude, it's amazing. Like I got it. I I'm in, uh, you know, I understand it. My feet feel stronger. They feel tired from the walk. But my knees don't feel tired. My hips don't feel tired. My feet feel tired because my feet were finally working. The small muscles of my feet were finally walking, working through every step of that entire walk. And you got to dig that when you're, when you're wearing those cushioned shoes and you're laced up tight, the small muscles of your feet are not working. The arch of your foot is supported. And so it's not working. So your arch atrophies, the small muscles of your feet atrophy. And then what you're doing is you're forcing the rest of your leg from the ankle up to do all the work. And again, that's that's a recipe for eventual disaster, which is why half of runners are injured, uh, you know, every year, and twenty five percent of of all runners are injured at any one point in time. Like right now, twenty five percent of all the people claim to be runners are injured. Uh, that's that doesn't speak well for that sport. That's that's worse than CrossFit. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. And I I also want like I think about elite sports too because I think about soccer for example where if you look at them they're actually running their heel strike is what we described. It's usually a mid stance with a little bit of you know especially when they're sprinting after the ball. But those shoes, man, those shoes are like bullet trains. They are yes. small, and you know I I know I know this because both of my boys play soccer, and so I'm often. You know, and, and the coaches will say the shoes too big. The shoe has to be tight, molded oh, around the that. foot, hate because that. if there's any room, then they're gonna it's gonna change their. Per they perception. won't be able to strike the ball as well. Is what yeah, 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 that's yeah, that's yeah, the so, feedback that we receive. So, yeah. what do you? What is your hope? Maybe for even for maybe soccer. Maybe it's you know there's other. Well, there's a company. I, I forget the name. It's a cool. It's a cool company. They're making a a wide toe box uh, soccer shoe. Uh, a cleat, if you will, mm. and it's a great, it's a great looking shoe. It's a great looking cleat. I got, I can't remember the name of it, um, and because uh, I want to promote them, um, but but people are working on this. We're thinking about making a stiff five toed cycling shoe because I I come from the cycling the world. The cycling where shoes are the same. The cycling, cycling cycling shoes are the same, and so right. in in, yeah. in the in the triathlon, you know, you ride in the Ironman, you ride 112 miles, you get off the bike, and your feet are numb from being so cramped for so long. And then you have to run on them and you have to actually call upon them to, you know, to strike the ground and do all the things that you're supposed to do when you're running. So um, I, I feel like we're, you know, we're, we're leading uh, the way for a, a real uh, revisiting of uh, sportswear, sports shoes and uh, cleats and things like that, because I think we've we've overlooked this for so long. The assumption that soccer cleats have to be tight, it may go back to some something that happened in the 1920s where somebody said the leather was too thin and it was and it kept stretching so you kept having to make the shoe tight i don't know what it was but a lot of these things have like a like the 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 origin of the uh of the theory or the origin of the of the way of doing it had no bearing on on science or reality it was just somebody just said oh i broke my shoelace i'm going to have to figure out a way to make it tighter or something and then the next thing you know everyone's wearing really tight soccer cleats and and uh, but if you look at uh, there's a there's a website that was called that has 25 pictures of the top 25 athletes in their sports and how oh, yeah. horrible their feet look. <laughs> Have you seen Messi's feet? Like yes, Messi's yeah. feet look they look like 
like his shoes. Like they look like a bullet, yes. like really yes. thin and then comes to a point. No, the, the same thing with Usain Bolt. His his feet are gnarly. LeBron James might have the ugliest feet of all. And again, they've been scrunched into this. And you and so you would go, okay, well, so wait a minute, Mark, what are you talking about? How are you arguing with Messi? He's the best in the world. Or LeBron, arguably one of the best ever. Um, well, I would say, you know, <laughs> what if what if we fix their feet? Maybe if they were even incrementally better. Yeah. You know, have you thought about that? Yeah, I love that. What's the potential? What's the human potential? What's, when what's you the actually... human potential? Yeah. yeah. Last question I have, uh, as someone of Portuguese origin, I want to understand the name of your, I have a feeling I, I think I know. <laughs> you know it if, you're, if you have Portuguese origin. <laughs> yeah, what do you tell, think? What do you uh, think? I think it's foot, foot love. Foot That's glove. Love, love. Foot foot love. Gl- no, it's foot glove. Luva is glove. Oh, lo- okay. Okay. Hey, Luva. Foot glove. Yeah. I love that. Beautiful. Yeah. So, and where did, where was the, where was the inspiration for it? Well, so I, um, you know, I've been the primal guy for 30 years. So I've had 20 trademarks on things primal from primal fitness, primal urge press, primal kitchen, primal blueprint, primal nutrition, primal fuel, primal health coach institute, so on and so forth. And I went to get primal footprint for footwear and it was, and the name primal was taken by somebody else, just the word primal. Oh. Not even and and so that precluded any use of the word primal in there. So we had to come up with a new, a new word, and um, we looked at a bunch of different uh, language generators and you know what is foot, what is glove, comfort, all these different things. Nice. Um, uh, Anisi, A N E S I was one of the names in the running. Anisi was uh, Greek for comfort, but uh, we came up with Paluva, and I, I mean we, we've it's been uh, it's we've we're three years into this company. We were two years of R&D, making sure we had wear testing everything and making sure everything was was appropriate before we launched just as recently as this past March. So Paluva has been with us as a name for three years. And we internally, we we love it. We've got a clothing line coming out that, that uh, accompanies the shoes with uh, the Paluva brand. And uh, it's, it's really exciting because I feel like, you know, as, as much as I feel like I had an impact on the world of uh, food manufacturing, with Primal Kitchen, I think a lot of companies saw what we were doing and said, "Oh, we better, we better get on that bandwagon and start making better for you uh, mayonnaises and condiments and salad dressings." I feel the same way about footwear. I think I think we, um, the company that preceded us, the five-toed shoe that preceded us, had a massive opportunity, and I think they squandered it. And this should have been people should have been wearing this shoe for the last twenty years. This, this sort of five-toed, comfortable, uh, foot-shaped shoe that improves performance, enhances health, uh, and, you know, is generally just more comfortable than anything else you're wearing. So I felt compelled to enter the fray with this company. Well, I'm so happy that you did. And I would also say just as a woman, uh, I I probably, I'm, so I'm training barefoot. I'm wearing these, let's say 80% of the time. And then, you know, I'm still going to wear my heels. Like I'm going to go. Don't stop. Don't stop wearing those heels. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So that's like, you know, that's movement. You know, you talk about, you know, metabolic flexibility. We talked about cognitive flexibility. This is movement flexibility, right? Like you do the right thing 80 to 85% of the time. Yeah, And then you can, and then I do, you know, I get into these really high heels that are very uncomfortable. I definitely pronate. My feet are always sore, but I look good and I do it for an evening and it's here and yes. there. It's not all the time. So like I say, don't stop doing that. This, <laughs> this is, that's not the point. The point is you want, again, it's, it's in the hours. It's, it's that it's, I think you, you, you nailed it. That, that additional term flexibility for, for the lifestyle thing yeah. part. 
Yeah. So spend, we would have people spend most of their day barefoot if they could, or in Paluvas if they can't go barefoot, walking around doing their thing. But, and what we call it passive training. You're passively training your feet all day long. And then when it's time to go do your thing, go run, put on your running shoes, go play soccer, put on your soccer cleats, uh, basketball, play, go out to dinner, put on your heels, you know, but come up tomorrow, come back and, and, and get back into Paluvas and get, get, uh, you know, enjoying the comfort of uh of foot health and is it paluva.com is that where people can find the shoes that's it paluva.com yeah awesome and then just uh you know if people already aren't following you which they should be on instagram your marxism primal anywhere else that people can find you um or the in- interact with you or the paluva i mean primal. mark's daily apple is the blog that i've had for 17 years now and uh so mark's daily apple or uh marxism primal on instagram would be the two best i think yeah beautiful awesome well, let me just say this has been just a delight talking to you. Uh, as I mentioned, I've been following you for many, many years. It's just been a highlight of my career to be able to have this conversation oh, with you. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, all the best to you for this this company. I love it. Um, as a chiropractor, the bi- the biomechanics works. And, you know, we didn't talk about ortho. I mentioned them briefly. But, you know, we were taught orthotics are the way for pronated yeah. feet. And, you know, when you think about, and I've changed my opinion on orthotics. I mean, there's yeah. always going to be some people who... Sure. You know, maybe as a temporary, same as, you know, the ketogenic diet, you need a temp, there's a temporary intervention to help relieve the plantar fascia, but it's not something that should be there forever, right? We want to be retraining the foot to move properly. Got to fix the root cause. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So in orthotics, just mask the thing. They let you go out and do it again today without fixing the, the right. problem. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Cool. Okay. Awesome. Right. Well, we will have all these links in the show notes. Mark, thank you so much. We will share this uh, with you when, uh, when we, when it's all produced and thank you so much. Thank you. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast better with Dr. Stephanie is for general information only and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare providers, advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only.